on this episode of The Committed. What good is my right to anything as a woman if I don't have my right to life? And they can never answer that question. Supreme Court retroactively issued her the death penalty and said you did not deserve the protection you received. But still, it shows the heart of God. The unwanted, orphaned, left to die, despised on the day they were born. That's God's priority. That's his heart. Everybody, thank you for pressing play on The Committed with James Newcomb, and I have my beautiful wife sitting at my side, and we won't be treated to her merciless and grossly unfair mistreatment of me in this episode because we have a very special guest. Her name is Rebecca Kiesling. This is someone that I've followed. I, I, in fact, I can't even remember how or where I heard of Rebecca, but it's been many years. She's someone that I have really admired for a very long time. And although I've I've had podcasts over the years, it's just the shows that I was involved with just didn't really work out to have uh, Rebecca as a guest. But uh, now here we are doing this one with my wife at my side. I couldn't hold back anymore, and I wanted to bring Rebecca onto the show. And so it's a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was a nice intro. Well, I try to keep it classy. You know, you ju- you just have a very unique story. And I, I'm just going to hand the floor to you because I'm sure that you can tell your history far better than I can. So just in your own words and with whatever you're comfortable with, could you just share your personal story and how it led to you becoming the advocate for the unborn that you've become? Sure. I was adopted and longed to know who my birth mother was. I was raised in a Jewish family, although they were um, secular, really atheists. You know, I wanted to know who my people were. I thought that meeting my birth mother would help bring like value, identity, purpose to my life. Asking those big questions, you know, big picture questions like, who am I? Why am I here? You know, I grew up knowing how the Jewish people were God's chosen, but then my classmates at Hebrew school would remind me that I wasn't really one of them. So it's like, well, where do I fit into God's plan? At 18, I petitioned and I, I was told I would never be able to meet my birth mother, but I went ahead and petitioned for some information. It had all kinds of details about her except for her name everything that was in the court file, just not her name. All it said for my biological father was that he was Caucasian and of large build, which sounds like a police description. I thought it over, talked to my adoptive parents, and they thought, oh, there must be some explanation. I called my caseworker and asked her, was my mom raped? And she told me, yeah, I was absolutely devastated. This whole journey was supposed to help enrich my life, not um, put a cloud over it. Of course, I thought about what people said about abortion in cases of rape and instantly felt targeted by our society. I was born before Roe v. Wade, so I was protected. I was born three and a half, exactly three and a half years before Roe versus Wade. Then I did meet my birth mother when I was 19 and she wanted to meet me and I received a beautiful letter from her. But then um, I I flew home to meet her, had a wonderful reunion weekend, got up the courage eventually to ask her about abortion. And she told me that if it had been legal, she absolutely would have aborted me. 
even if she had to do it all over again, that it should have been her right and that I don't know what it was like. I don't know what it was like for her. It really hurt when she said that, of course. This woman, my birth mother, was this iconic figure in my life. I mean, she was precious to me. And to hear her say that, I just felt so devalued, felt worthless in many ways. And I I still didn't know, like, who I was. Why am I here? Like, I'm here because the law protected me and then that's it. Like, the idea that she could have killed me, that the Supreme Court said that she should have been able to kill me. It was really hard to grasp all of that. And then she later told me she actually went to two illegal abortions and I was almost aborted. And she backed out again, just because it was illegal. But I know all the details of those two abortions. They're described in very graphic detail on the website, on, on your website. And it was just just really, really back alley, just dirty, dingy. and. Well, one of them, though, were, it was a doctor's office. It was an OBGYN's office. Oh. Yeah. But like many of the legal abortion clinics today, you know, they're filthy. They're deplorable conditions. I think for the sake of uh, my wife, Sana, who's not American, and probably some people listening to this may not know, but Roe versus Wade is a Supreme Court case in 1973, I believe, essentially made abortion legal across all 50 of the U.S. states. So it was fought in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court just kind of trumps all of the the individual laws of the states. So just, just to give a history of, of what she's talking about. And I'll give you like a little bit more of a history. Uh, it was in like the 1850s, 1860s, when there began to be abortion laws in the United States. And it was called the Physicians Movement. It was actually physicians led the charge to ban abortion because they knew that it's dangerous for women and harmful. And, you know, the early feminists spoke out against abortion. And then, you know, abortion became illegal everywhere in the U.S. But then in 1967, they started legalizing abortion in certain states, Colorado, and then across the South, they started adding a rape exception. And that that was racially motivated. And then New York legalized abortion. And so that was all 1967, 1968. I was conceived in October 1968. I was born July 22nd, 1969. The Michigan law, which protected me, actually is still on the books in Michigan. It was never repealed. It's only one of only five states that still has their abortion ban on the books. But it can't be enforced because of Roe versus Wade. The decision in Roe versus Wade was January 22nd, 1973. So it was exactly three and a half years after my birth date. The trial in Texas in Roe v. Wade was exactly 10 months after my birthday. And Norma McCorvey, she's the woman who was Jane Roe in Roe versus Wade. She never had an abortion. It was denied at the trial level in Texas. It took several years to reach the Supreme Court. And so, of course, she gave birth. I asked people, even pro-life activists, a lot of people don't know like whether she had a son or a daughter. She had a daughter. So there's a woman, and she placed her daughter for adoption. So there's a woman who's walking the face of this earth who was literally targeted for abortion in that case, where Supreme Court retroactively issued her the death penalty and said, you don't need to be living. You did not deserve the protection you received. And nobody ever talks about this woman. They talk about a fetus. It's always easier to kill when you dehumanize. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing. I know that's a difficult story, no matter how many 
times you tell it. So we appreciate you being so open and candid about it. Now, I want, I'm interested in knowing at what moment did you know that you like felt the call or you felt led to pursue the profession that you eventually did, going to law school and becoming an advocate? Tell us about that journey. I wanted to be an attorney since I was 10. Okay. I, I can't stand anything that's arbitrary. <laughs> All right. If I feel that there's something unfair, unjust. So I would have these conversations with my adoptive father, and especially when I felt like he was being unfair to me. And I would sort of talk him through it. And he'd say, oh, you're good. You're good. You know, you should be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> he went to law school three times, dropped out, ended up becoming a professor. But I remember him talking to me about what the law was all about, what lawyers do. He took me to see the movie The Verdict with Paul Newman. All right. And in this movie, he was like a hero. And I thought, you know, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to be a hero. I want to advocate for the weak and, you know, fight for justice. And like, I used to love watching, you know, all the superhero cartoons, the Justice League. (laughs) That was my opportunity to sort of be, you know, the superhero figure. (laughs) Um, That, and, And so I wanted to be a lawyer since I was 10. I ended up using my law degree. I, I had I've had numerous high profile cases um, that were national, international news because of the work that I've done, like pro bono, like free legal work protecting human life from conception. Can you share one or two that were more prominent than the others? I'll just give you kind of like a highlight. I had four within 14 months as, as a young attorney. The frozen embryo case in Michigan, which was the first in in Michigan, third in the U.S. It was a husband and uh, ex-husband, ex-wife, you know, fighting over their five sons and daughters. He wanted them destroyed. She wanted to give them the opportunity to be born. And then the next one was um, I represent a woman who was sued for not aborting for breach of contract. So the guy who got her pregnant, she had found out that he was married having you know, that she, she found out she was basically his mistress and she ended the relationship and then found out two weeks later, she was pregnant. He gave her money for an abortion. And and she said she didn't want an abortion. And, and then she said, fine, I'll think about it. And he gave her $500. And he said, this is the last dime you'll ever get from me. And then she called him a month later and she says, I can't do it. I can't have an abortion. And he told her, I'm going to sue you. So when she had to receive state aid, the state sued him to establish paternity and child support, and he filed a counterclaim for breach of contract, basically saying that he had already paid for that child's life. The child was a year and a half old at that point, and he was arguing that that child like shouldn't be alive. I paid for that child's death. Why should I have to pay for child support? And I, I represented her pro bono. And then there was a case where a 12-year-old was raped by her brother, 14-year-old brother. Sadly, they the judge allowed the family to take her to Tiller the Killer in Wichita, Kansas for a late-term abortion. She was um, seven months pregnant, and they could have delivered the baby, and they could have had a live baby. You know, the chance of survival back then was 85% chance. Um, if you waited two more weeks, the baby would have had a 96% chance of survival. Now, you know, there's over a 95% chance of those children surviving at that age at, at 28 weeks. But they wanted a dead baby because this child was a child of rape, a child of incest. And, you know, she had to go through labor. It was a three-day procedure. It's not like you avoid delivery, but she had to deliver a dead baby. 
which is so much more traumatic. But I had argued on behalf of that unborn child and was asking the judge to appoint me to represent the unborn child's best interest because the prosecutor, everybody was settling and they, they dropped the charges against her brother and nothing happened. I mean, what happens with young girls is that they send them back and they continue to be perpetrated. The abortion usually protects the perpetrator and enables them to continue. It destroys the evidence. And then I had one more case with a, a woman who had been raped while in a group home. And there was a court order for an abortion, cover up of the rape. And I represented the family wanting to get guardianship of the baby. We found out when she was still pregnant, she had like a month before her due date. They forced their way into the group home and found her pregnant. And they were going to have a group home manager adopt that baby. And nobody made a report to Adult Protective Services. The judge hadn't cared, didn't ask, is she being raped every day? She had like the mentality of a, of a three-year-old, basically, developmentally. The judge didn't care about her. It wasn't like, oh, she's pro-woman. Let's protect the rape victim. No, they just covered up the rape, destroyed the evidence, and then you know, for all we knew, she was being raped every day. And then I got her moved out of that home, exposed what was done, exposed, you know, what the judge had done and got the family custody. We got adult protective services involved. I mean, there's all these people had a duty of care to protect her. So kind of wild that I had these cases because they came to me through my yellow page ad under family law attorney. Like they didn't even know I was pro-life. They didn't know I was conceived in rape. And all these cases came to me because they needed a family law attorney and they happened to call me. So you weren't like advertising yourself as the pro-life. You didn't have save the one.com at the time. This was in the, I guess, probably the nineties. Yeah. Late nineties. And now I've had high profile cases. Um, I sued the state of Iowa for save the one because they had a discriminatory rape exception and fetal abnormality exception in their heartbeat bill, which violates equal protection. Um, we deserve equal protection of the law. And then I've also had high profile cases terminating the parental rights of rapists. So I kind of specialize in that now. The Rape Survivor Child Custody Act is, is I'm behind that with some others and it's passed federally. It gives state incentives. So now half our states have passed our law to terminate parental rights of rapists without requiring a rape conviction using clear and convincing evidence standards. So I'm sounding really like a lawyer now. <laughs> well, that's okay. Seeing how you are a lawyer, I think we can forgive that. So yeah, I love what I do. I you know, help make a difference in this world. And so I do the legal, I use my legal expertise. And then I also, you know, give a voice to others. I advocate myself, you know, as a pro-life activist. Um, I speak internationally. I've spoken yeah. in parliaments all over the world, studied many different languages to be able to go and speak in their language. Well, you're speaking internationally tonight. We're in Vietnam and you're in Michigan. Yeah, We, we had a Vietnamese uh, foreign exchange student. Oh, really? Yeah, before on. It was so wonderful to have him. It's nice to unite different cultures. It is. It is. It's interesting to uh, see how cultures are very much the same, but very different. I started a practice, and it wasn't a pro-life practice. It was a family law. And I guess just by providence, I would say. The... Yeah, I know this is all part of God's plan, you know. Well, when did you become like a believer, a Christian, and how does your faith affect or influence your practice? I 
was first saved at a Pentecostal Assembly of God altar call when I was 15 and then fell away. I felt sort of forsaken by my church friends. And so after nine months, I fell away. I was pretty lost for a while. Like I believed, like I knew right from wrong, I knew better, but I really struggled when I was 18 and learned how I was conceived. I was not in church. I made a lot of bad choices, you know, um, just wanting to be loved. Ended up in law school. I was beat up by a boyfriend from law school. He broke my jaw. My front tooth was hanging. I ended up losing my front tooth eventually. But it was through that experience, God used that and someone invited me back to church. I gave my heart over to Christ, like first time back. I remember they sang Amazing Grace and I just broke down. I knew I'd squandered the gifts God had given me and rededicated my life to him. And then just had huge growth during that time, you know, got into some foundational studies. And I remember right away, this study that I was in, it was in a process to, you know, be baptized. One of the first scriptures they gave us was how it's in the spirit of adoption that we're all called to be God's children through Christ our Lord. And it was like, wait, what does that say? And it was like revolutionary for me to realize for God, adoption was not second best, last resort. My parents like hadn't been infertile. They wouldn't have wanted me. Felt like adoption was who would who would want to adopt if they didn't have to, right? To hear that this was God's first choice and a picture of his love for us, and that as Christians we're called to adopt, to look after the widows and orphans in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by this world, to know that that orphans are a priority to him and adoption is glorious. That um, we're no longer you know, living as a slave woman's son, but you know we get to cry out "Abba, Father," and we get to share in the inheritance. And you know that family tree was no longer painful for me, knowing that you know these aren't my people, like the Jewish people. They're not my people. You know we're told that we're grafted in, right? Through Christ, we're grafted in to that family tree, and so I can embrace that Jewish heritage, like Ruth did when she said that your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And it just brought everything full circle, like my value, identity, and purpose. Like I know that my identity is is as a not a product of rape, but a child of God, that I was created by God in his image for a purpose, which was not to be aborted. I know that he has special plans for my life. You know, the heart of God in like Ezekiel 16, you have that child at the side, the, the newborn at the side of the road, you know, you know, he says, I saw you there. You know, your, your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite, like basically saying you were a half breed and maybe even raped. Maybe they were warring, you know, and that like, and it says on the day you were born, you were despised. Like, that's how I felt just unwanted, uncared for. And he's, you know, and it said that like the umbilical cord was still attached, which means that child was going to bleed to death. And he says, I saw you and I said, live. You know, and he brings that child in and it's really an allegory for Israel, but still it shows the heart of God that, that this, the unwanted orphan left to die, despised on the day they were born. That's God's priority. That's his heart. And this has been my healing. And then to know my, my worth, I know that it's not, you know, I'm not worthless, but priceless. And if somebody wants to know my worth, like I'm not going to open my checkbook but I can show them the cross. That's my worth. That's the price 
that was paid for my life. And I wasn't worthless, but priceless. You are too, and so are your listeners, and I hope they know their worth. Hey, everybody, if you will pardon the interruption for just a moment, I want to take a moment to tell you about the podcasting services that I and my esteemed colleagues here in Vietnam are providing for people all over the world. And our business is called Podcast Artistry. Having a podcast allows you the opportunity to speak with people that you really admire and that you really respect. And maybe a podcast is in your future too. If you have thought about perhaps exploring the idea of starting your own podcast, let me put it to you this way. The work that is involved is not difficult, but actually doing it is it's a challenge for sure. But it's very rewarding for those who are truly committed. See what I did there? To the craft. Now, if you want to learn more about it, if you're just a little bit interested in finding out maybe podcasting is something that you want to do to promote yourself, your business, or even if you just want to talk to people who are your heroes, it might be a good idea for you to check it out. Podcastartistry.com. And you can book a free exploratory call and see if it's right for you. That's podcastartistry.com. Back to the show with Rebecca Kiesling. It's interesting that you would read those scriptures. If I were to read them, I would just, I would gloss over them. But you come across those, like the Ezekiel 16 that you mentioned, it really hits home for you. There's that one that says, a father to the fatherless is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. And though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Because I know what it's like to feel forsaken. And I love the fact that that's in scripture because... Um, you know, a lot of people would just say, oh, life's what you make of it, whatever, like get over it. You know, the secular worldview would be like, oh, well, just get over it, move on. You know, it's like to know that the Bible doesn't gloss over that, right? I mean, it's funny. I've said that before and you use the term, I would have glossed over it. But, you know, God's word does not gloss over it. The fact that it's in there to, to acknowledge that this is real, this happens. There are children who are utterly forsaken by their parents. There are children who are despised the day they're born, but you know what? They matter and they matter to God and they should matter to us. We're told to look after the widows and orphans. And it says that religion, you know, religion that God, our father accepts and pure as faultless as this to look after the widows and orphans. Like that's the ultimate religion. Well, Asana, I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm detecting some serious passion in Rebecca. <laughs> Sana says she feels the same. We're glad to we're glad to be speaking with you. Let's say you're in a court case and you've described some of these cases already. The way you describe them, when you're arguing these cases or you, you just hear the absolute lack of compassion for humanity, do you sense or have you ever said this is absolute spiritual warfare? Oh yeah. I'm on God's side and these people are absolutely on the other side. Yeah, there was this one time, okay, so the the case involving the 12-year-old who was raped by her brother, like she wasn't in the courtroom and her family was allowed to be dismissed from the courtroom so they wouldn't have to hear what I had to say. The judge had already made her ruling that she was going to allow them to take her out of state in violation of Michigan law. Michigan law did not allow this late-term abortion. That's why they wanted to take her to Kansas. I mean, it was like a conspiracy to violate. I'm the only one who called the attorney general's office in Kansas, and their position is, 
oh my gosh, we're glad, so glad somebody finally called on this case. This judge didn't even care. And the crazy thing is that this judge was endorsed by Right to Life of Michigan for the Court of Appeals. She was running for Court of Appeals. It was like, oh my gosh, with friends like that, like, you know. Yeah, who needs enemies? I, I could not believe it. Like, it was so stupid. It was ridiculous. But at any rate, so I went ahead and I I, I made my plea why under the Michigan law, I'm a suitable person to be appointed as guardian ad litem to represent the best interests of this unborn child. Every state has a statute that authorizes judges to appoint a guardian ad litem to represent. Because in inheritance cases, if a woman's pregnant and, um, you know, let's say she, uh, you know, she was with a very wealthy guy, right? And she's pregnant, the guys, or let's say his his father was extremely wealthy or his grandfather, and that person dies, he's now getting the inheritance. And he may be a, a jerk and want nothing to do with her. And he doesn't want to share in the inheritance with his own child. He wants that child to be aborted. And she's not having an abortion. So that child has a legal right to inherit that's fully capable of being protected by the law. And the, the judge will appoint a guardian ad litem to represent the best interests of the unborn child to preserve that unborn child's right to inherit in the case. And it's so crazy that, you know, all across the country, we have this uh, unborn children have a, a right to inherit. They have all kinds of other rights that can be protected in the womb, a right not to be harmed. You know, when, when a woman goes for an x-ray, if she's of childbearing age, she has to wear a lead apron and she has to sign a release saying that there's no chance that she's pregnant because they're legally protected from harm. You know, there's certain drugs that we've banned, like thalidomide that we've banned in, in the United States because the rights of unborn children are legally protected, you know, but just not their right to life. They have a right to inherit, but they don't have a right to life. I mean, it's like the law is truly schizophrenic. It really is. It bends over backwards to accommodate abortion. So what happened is I was making all of my arguments and, and I told the judge that I had an expert in maternal fetal medicine, who a perinatologist who was in court that day, who could testify and was ready, willing, and able to deliver that baby free of charge that day. And the baby would survive and all these people want to adopt. And there's, I had all sorts of experts lined up. And the judge wouldn't allow any of that, but allowed me to speak just to like kind of appease right to life in Michigan or something, like make it look like she's doing something, which is a farce. But at the end, I decided to pull out a fetal model, professional fetal model of an unborn child at 28 weeks. And the doctor had told me that you know, they do not di differentiate in size at 28 weeks. This is exactly what this unborn child would look like. So I pulled this fetal model out and held this up in court. And I said, this is exact size and shape of this unborn child. The ACLU lawyer, who is like totally pro-abortion, she jumped up out of her chair and screamed like, objection, your honor, this is an outrage, you know? And and, and the judge was like, you know, I gave you time. Is there anything more to say? But she, the fact that I was like holding this up in court and there was like CNN and 
reporters were all in the jury box and they had like satellite link, you know, feeding it, you know, all over the, the country around the world for people to see this. Right. You know, and she like she didn't want this to be seen. But what it reminded me of, like her instant reaction totally reminded me of vampire movies when someone pulls out a crucifix. Wow. Right. And the vampire just shrieks, covers their their eyes, and no, you know, like as, as if they're saying objection. And that's what she did. And I just, in that moment, I just looked and I was like, I felt like the devil was shrieking. I really felt that this is spiritual warfare. The way she could not handle truth. Well, I was reading on your website that you've spoken to colleges and You've you've had people they they get up they take the microphone and they make make a comment and they will say right to your face even though you've just told me that you know you would have you would have been aborted I still think that maybe you maybe you can just clarify on what I'm trying to say here but yeah well, no I challenge people and I tell them like the horrible things that people say to me and 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 what my reality is and I've had people raise their hand and say. Um, yeah, I just want to say that I have no problem looking you in the eyes and saying to you, I think your mother should have been able to abort you. And I fully understand that that would mean that you'd be dead right now. But yeah, I have no problem. And this is allegedly out of their care for women, you know, that they would say such a thing to a woman like me. You know, I don't feel the love. What good is my right to anything as a woman if I don't have my right to life? And they can never answer that question. I've also helped change the hearts of radical abortion extremists. So I was speaking in the university once. The pro-life Students for Life leadership warned me that the last event they had on campus, they actually had a priest speak up on stage. And this girl with her whole entourage, her whole, whole like, you know, quote, pro-choice entourage um, showed up and she went on stage topless in front of the priest to like protest having a pro-life speaker. And then when she arrived, they said she's here with her whole group. Like, okay, all right. And they all sat right up front. And they're, you know, they always try to be distracting during my speech, like my initial speech, like an hour long, and then we do Q&A. They're like all whispering and rolling their eyes and making faces and mocking. And that, that happens a lot. It's fine. But I, I look at them. I look them in the eyes. You know, I address them. I share these stories, like what I just told you, I shared about that, you know, people who say these things to me, you know, because now I feel like it's kind of disarming, like, I put it out there before someone else says it, right, because it's already out there, and I show the cruelty, and then you hear the whole audience gasp that people treat me this way, right? So now if you want to really be that bold, you already know you're going to look like such a jerk. Afterwards, this girl comes up to me and she's like trembling. And she asks, like, can I speak to you privately? She starts, she's totally trembling. And she's like, look, when I was like 15, like I was raped and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. You didn't deserve that. She's like, please let me finish. She's like, I just, I have to get this out. And she's like, I swore nobody could ever change my mind about abortion. She just started streaming tears and sobbing. And she's like, 
But after hearing you speak, she's like, you've totally changed my mind about abortion. She's like, I could not ever say those horrible things to you. She's like, like, you're a good person. You're a good person. I can't like look you in the eyes and say those things to you. She's like, I can't say that you don't deserve to be living. And and I'm like, thank you so much. And she's like, you don't understand. I'm going to lose all my friends. She's like, all my friends over there. And I look over and she's like, they're all so angry that I'm over here talking to you. And the pro-life kids on campus, she's like, they hate me. And I'm like, no, they don't. And she's like, yeah, you don't know what I did. And then she told me, I mean, like I had already heard the story, you know, but she told me what she had done. I said, you know what? I will talk to them. I said, believe me, some of my best friends in life used to be pro-choice activists. They're my dearest friends. They're precious to me. I said, they're not going to hate you. And I like, we hugged and I asked her to keep in touch. And I mean, and it just, it just goes to show like you can change hearts and minds. You know, and yeah, it's spiritual warfare, but you got to show them love. It's like, you know, there are people who were like um, really upset. The disciples upset with Jesus that he was having dinner with sinners and tax collectors or people upset that, you know, the the prostitute was, you know, wiping her hair with perfume, you know, on, on his feet. And like, oh, if he knew what kind of woman that was, like he would associate with her. And, you know, but we have to, we have to engage, you know, we have to be savvy, but like, I really believe again, it's stories that pierce the heart and ways in which arguments cannot. It's important to couch the arguments in terms of personal stories. So you want to do both. You don't want to just tell, oh, an uplifting life affirming story. Oh, it's all about choose life, like using their terminology. Like it's just all about choice. No, it's about humanity, the child. So you want to do both. You want to use stories. And that's what Jesus did. Like he told stories and he, he taught the principle through the story, through the parable. And that's the example to us. Oftentimes the spiritual warfare is within us because we feel tempted to uh, judge others when they don't do things the way we think they ought to. And uh, that's a beautiful story about how those uh, your friends that were once your enemies and now your, your friends and, the, and this other young lady. Well, let's talk about our favorite topic, politics. You, you've managed to uh, sway some of the opinions of some influential policymakers. Tell us about that. I mean, I testify before legislatures all over the country. As I said, I've spoken in parliaments around the world and definitely have changed a lot of hearts and minds, including, again, um, pro-choice Democrats who completely turned around and voted for 100% pro-life measure after hearing me testify. I mean, I guess the, the biggest stories are Governor Rick Perry and Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House of the U.S. Congress, Newt Gingrich, during their presidential campaign. Governor Perry was a governor of Texas, and he later became Secretary of Energy. But they were both rape exception candidates. And I'm in a film, the Citizens United film. Citizens United, they put out a lot of conservative documentaries, gained a lot of credibility, like having fought that battle, you know, for for freedom. The name of the film is The Gift of Life with Governor Mike Huckabee, and mine is one of several stories featured in that film. So I had backstage passes to the premiere in Des Moines, Iowa. There were four presidential candidates who spoke at the premiere because it was held in between two presidential debates, like the night before and the night after. So they were all in town, you know, campaigning in Iowa. I went backstage, introduced myself to each. I told them that I'm in the film, in tonight's film, 
and that I was national spokeswoman for personhood. And right away, Senator Rick Santorum and Congresswoman Michelle Bachman said, oh, I signed the personhood pledge. It was a no exceptions, no compromise pledge. And the first time it ever been put out, it was put out by personhood. And um, it came out two days before and they both signed it immediately. But Perry and Gingrich had not signed it because they were both avowed to be rape exception candidates. And I handed them each my DVDs and then our group DVD, Accepting Cases of Rape, 12 Stories of Survival. And then my business card that said Conceived in Rape, Targeted for Abortion. You know, subtle. Right away, Governor Perry was stunned. And he said, this is your story? And I shared with him, you know, how I was conceived and almost aborted and told him how I'm, you know, what I do with this network and how I speak internationally and just kind of briefly. And I told them that I help others with their stories and that as an attorney, I've, I've defended human life. And he says to me, can I have your autograph? Oh, this is the governor that said that? Yeah. Oh. On the DVD. Okay. And I said, no. And he says, he says, no, I mean it. He said, make it out to my daughter. Like, and he gave me a marker. So I wrote 100% pro-life Rebecca Keithling. And then he asked me more questions about what I do. And I, I told him, um, that's why I told him like a little bit more about what I do. And he said, you know, you're my heroine. Like, wow, <laughs> thank you so much. And I said, but you know, it's funny you say that. Because my question for you is, would you be my hero? And he said, yes, 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 I would. I said, but you make that rape exception. And he put his head down and he shook his head and he, he, he still holding the DVDs. And he says, wow, this is so powerful. This, this is so powerful. Knew that like there were people waiting and I didn't know how much time I'd have with him. And I told them that I want to get my photo taken with you, but my battery's dead. And he said, well, I have my own personal photographer here. Come with me. And we went to his green room where they took tons of photos, which he never sent me, but he did use like footage of us with governor Huckabee in his ad campaign. So he kept looking at the camera saying, at the images saying, I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine. And I looked up at him and I explained, you know, when you make that rape exception, that's like saying to me that I deserve the death penalty for the crimes of my biological father. I said to him, you know, the Supreme Court said that he didn't even deserve the death penalty. There's no death penalty for rapists and even for child molesters. They said that it's cruel and unusual punishment. I said, you believe that? And he was like nodding his head. And I said to him, but you believe that I, the innocent child, deserved the death penalty? And he said, no, no, I, I don't. And he stopped me and he said, you know, tonight's event and this film are supposed to be all about changing hearts and minds. And right now you're changing my heart. And I thought like changing, like, okay, what's that supposed to mean? And I had tons of friends who told, who told me on Facebook, they were saying that um, they were praying for me. And they said uh, that, 
You're going to have your Esther moment. I just know it. You're going to have your Esther moment for such a time as this. And, you know, I don't know if your if your stories, if your listeners know the story of Esther, Queen Esther in, in the book of Esther in the Bible, she had to be courageous to, to speak up and challenge the king or her people were going to be killed. It said the battle is not ours. And, you know, for such a time as this, that you're here, like, this is why you're here. This is why you became queen. God's going to use this moment with this leader. This was my Esther moment. Like, and I was not about to miss it. So I challenged him. I said, no more rape exceptions. And he looked me in the eyes and he promised no more rape exceptions. And I just thought, yes. And, you know, in his speech that night, he, you know, they all had prepared speeches. He kept saying like, all life, all life is worthy of protection. So it's like, uh, I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I'm like, huh? Like he's not coming out. He's not saying anything. I thought maybe in his speech, like he would, you know, he'd, he'd make it clear that he's no exceptions now. But the next morning, he signed the personhood pledge. And so did Newt Gingrich. And I found out immediately from personhood that they had both signed the pledge. And then he was asked about it at like a, a town hall in Iowa. And he went on national news like four times really quickly during his presidential campaign in Iowa, talking about our conversation, how my story pierced his heart. And he said that he could not look me in the eyes and make the rape exception any longer. He went back to Texas and over the next year or so, they passed some of the strongest laws in the nation. And, and nine months earlier, they passed an ultrasound bill which didn't even say that a woman has to view an ultrasound before an abortion, just says she has to be told that she has the opportunity to view an ultrasound. I mean, that like really does nothing. And they had a rape exception in Texas for an ultrasound bill. Like, like it's just appalling to even suggest a, a, such a radical thing to an, a rape victim that she would have the opportunity to, to view, you know, the rapist child, right? You know, it was just terrible that they had a rape exception in that law. I was so upset. But he went back and he changed the culture of his state. Like I said, some of the best laws in the nation, no rape exceptions from that point forward. And then Newt Gingrich later talked about it, you know, how... It was my story in that film, The Gift of Life, that changed his heart. I, I could tell you one more politician that was kind of a cool story. It was um, a Canadian senator. He had been a member of parliament at the time that I met him and he heard me speak. And he had been a rape exception guy. And I didn't know what was going on. But like years later, I was speaking at a big conference in Toronto. And um, or the Toronto area, and he was introducing me. Like he wasn't like the MC of the event, but he was introducing me for some reason. I had no idea what was coming. But in the introduction, he talked about how I had been um, how I'd spoken years earlier when he was a member of parliament, he heard me at a fundraiser and that I had changed his mind about the rape exception. He said, you know, that changed his, his policy views, right? He said that a couple of years later, his wife became pregnant. They got a diagnosis of like trisomy, either 18 or 13. 
they were being recommended to abort their baby, saying that this was a fatal fetal abnormality and and um, they were being pushed really heavily to abort. And he said, I just kept hearing Rebecca's voice saying, doesn't my life matter? And he said, and he was like crying when he's telling this story. And he said that, um, you know, she had changed my mind on policy. He said, but now, like personally, she impacted my life. And he said that, you know, they chose life for their child and, and not to abort this child, but to give this child a chance at life. And he said, because all I kept thinking about was, was Rebecca and her story and how her life matters and every life matters. No exceptions. Like, wow. Wow. That was such a privilege. Well, Rebecca, I think that you should consider a career as a public speaker because you're really good at this. Uh, Sana, I think that if you are not moved by this, then you should check your pulse and see if see if things are working okay with your heartbeat. But uh, we are sadly out of time, but hopefully someday the stars will align. We can do a, a round two maybe someday. Maybe you can have some other people from Save the One. There's like some amazing stories there. All yeah. kinds of um, hard case topics, not just the rape issues. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, anyway, Rebecca, it's been, a, it's been a real treat to follow you over the years, mostly on Facebook, I guess. It's great to meet you via Zoom. This is just one of the perks of being a podcaster is you get to meet people that you admire. And, and uh, this is just one part of my job that I really enjoy. So I just want to say thanks for being on the show. Yeah, and I love it. I mean, I feel like I have friends all over the world. It is a privilege. You can learn more about me, James Newcomb, and our business on the web at committedmedia.org. There you'll find a growing library of free ebooks, courses, podcasts, and much more. And it's all available on our free mobile app. That's committedmedia.org.